Hello and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. My name's Luther. Aubrey, how are we doing today? What's the latest? We are doing well. I was um, <laughs> rather surprisingly inducted, I guess is the word that you use, uh, into the old guys, the grumpy old guys club at the YMCA this morning. So I was running a bit late to earlier meetings today because of that. Um, so what's the uh, topic du jour for the grumpy old guys club at the YMCA? Um, well, there was a variety of things. One of them was getting a tooth pulled at the dentist. Um, the other one <laughs> was the uh, remembering what it's like to um, race horses with a bunch of uh, noobs who don't know what they're doing. So there was some choice language that was not used. It was just implied because there was a girl present. It was very nice of them. Oh, the, the gentlemanly grumpy old yeah, guys club. I like that. Yeah. Uh, have you ever raced a horse? I have not. I rode horses when I was like eight. I was very bad at it. The last time I rode a horse, I fell off of the horse and it nearly stepped on me, which would have been tragic, but it missed me. So the horse's name was Raffi. It was a friend's horse. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've never liked horses, and I'm sorry if we lose listeners for this, but um, I don't like animals that think they're better than me, uh, with the exception of cats, because you can pick them up and move them. You cannot do this with a horse, or a, a not a jack, not a I won't use that word, uh, a donkey, or even like a large Great Dane. I just um, have an aversion because I need to be superior to whatever four-legged creature is near me which is probably a personal fault. But moving past that, uh, <laughs> uh, on a serious topic, uh, abortions appear to be up after Dobbs. And you've done some reporting on this, Aubrey. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? This is different than I think initially we thought that abortions may be down after Dobbs. Uh, what happened? Right, yeah. So I think... It really speaks to the kind of battle that we're going to be fighting after Dobbs. I mean, every pro-lifer knew, already knew going into Dobbs that the battle isn't over, right? Like, just because it's not at the national level, we've now moved to the state level. And there are 50 of those, lots of them. Um, and more than a dozen states have passed abortion bans of some kind, which is amazing. It's great. But um, what I think what we've been seeing is that a lot of a lot of women are traveling for an abortion. The other thing that's gone up is orders of abortion pills. So that seems to be the primary, like two things that women turn to. And yeah, so they aren't up a lot. It's just ever so slightly. Um, some people think it's because we've gotten better at reporting. There are fewer places that women can get abortions. And so it's easier to track how many are actually happening. Um, but Overall, they're up, which is really hard to hear as a pro-lifer, I think, especially, you know, for somebody who's been in that sphere for, you know, their entire life. I was a generation that grew up um, in late October, spending my time on life chains outside of abortion clinics, which, by the way, is always cold and windy. I don't know why. It's like that one Sunday in October, the weather came utterly miserable for no particular reason. Anyway, every other Sunday is fine. Not that one. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, I think, and this is something I said in the newsletter um, when I wrote about it and, and on the site, it's 
it really speaks to how much we actually have to change women's minds and hearts when it comes to the issue. It's not about legislation necessarily. Women have to decide that abortion is not the way to handle an unwanted pregnancy, that the child, that the new life within them is actually a child. It's not a part of their own body. And so that when they're told like, oh, you have a right to abortion, they say, well, no, my child has a right to life. Like that has to be our automatic response nationwide. Other, There's just no other way, I think, to defeat abortion. Um, Correct. And Melissa also pointed out, and I think she'd allow me to say this, that it also may be some economic pressure with yeah. uh, a recession in everything but name uh, inflation really coming down hard on those who are using purchasing consumer goods, rent. Uh, I think it's difficult for a lot of women to imagine taking care of another child. If I'm going to be as sympathetic as possible to the abortion argument, it's that a lot of Americans are struggling. And so that internal battle over how how is the future going to look is becoming more bleak for um, women who are find themselves pregnant. Right. And that's that's something that's difficult to explain when you, you know, we have people who refuse to even admit that there is a recession. It's like, oh, the economy is great. But then it's like, well, why are all these marker like social markers, you know, increasing that would matter for a recession? <laughs> yeah, the one that just killed me was dadgum Paul Krugman uh, over at The New York Times. And he puts out this graph that shows uh inflation going down um and then it says it excludes like autos rent and uh consumer goods or something so ridiculous like everything that people absolutely need to buy those items are going down <laughs> everything else is going up and like you are such a shill it's just it's an embarrassment uh economists are I think they're ashamed to be associated with the man. Um, I don't know what happens when you get a seat at the New York Times. Your brain just kind of rolls down um, through Manhattan and into the river. But um, moving on uh, from that subject to another really heavy one, uh, a ceasefire in, Ant in Israel that the left is calling for, and Biden seems to be coming along to this idea now. I see is just an anti-Israel charade, right? Where they're calling for a ceasefire after one of the greatest terror attacks um, on the Jewish people in history. Um, and some put it that more Jews died on that day, October 7th, than at any point other than the Holocaust um, in modern history anyway. Uh, what are you seeing there? Why is this happening on the left? I, I, I've heard some leftists point out that they they think that the anti-Israel or anti-Israel sentiment, anti-Semitic sentiment on the left is, um, is a fringe minority that are just simply very very loud. Um, and they definitely are allowed, for instance, I mean, like they're all over social media. I think this week I saw a video of them 
um, breaking into a Senate hearing where uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was giving a presentation to Senate and um, and they're like just screaming about, you know, like ceasefire or whatever. And I think Biden, who's, um, you know, he's not, people don't care for him. And what's it called? Approve, his approval rating keeps going down. And so he's eager to please somebody, anybody, the loudest person in the room. And the loudest person in the room happens to be anti-Semitic. So I think He's trying to walk this line where he knows like, okay, Israel is an ally. He has to support Israel, but he's getting a lot of pressure. I don't know. Is is that something that you see as well? Yeah, I think there are two things. One, there are anti-Israel polities in a couple states that Biden really needs. Um, Michigan for one, Minnesota for another. Uh, he has Illinois wrapped up. Uh, but I think it's more the campus left uh, that is really in the establishment's ears on this subject. I mean, you look at the polling, everyone over the age of 30 is far more pro-Israel uh, than they are. Uh, Pro-Gaza, which is, I don't like to conflate things, but to be pro-Gaza as far as funding is concerned is to be giving money to Hamas. That is the reality on the ground. Uh, whatever money goes into Gaza will be immediately put into the hands of Hamas to continue the fight against Israel and to kill as many Jews uh, as possible. So there's a lot of playing with titles and descriptions, but that's, that is the reality. Uh, and so to have people under the age of 30 80 to 20 supporting uh, money going into Gaza instead of to Israel uh, to put Hamas away as permanently as one can uh, is terrifying, not only for the state of Israel, but also looking at the future of American politics and concern that a lot of this is coming off of TikTok, something I believe we talked about last week, uh, that, <clears throat> China can prioritize uh, certain videos that are pro-Hamas uh, over uh, Israel in this uh, debate. And we even saw that uh, China was removing from certain map databases Israel um, as a country, as a, a, pol uh, uh, yeah, a political structure on the map. And this new Russian-Chinese um, axis of uh, international strength opposed to NATO, opposed to the West, opposed to human decency. I mean, if, they, if there's something good, they're probably opposed to it. They probably have a strong stance against puppies. Uh, I have not seen that yet, but I, I feel like it's, it's coming any day now. Uh, but to get serious again, that's what Democrats are feeling, and that's the pressure that's being put on the Biden administration. It's unserious. It's influenced by malign international actors, and it's absolutely everywhere online. Uh, so there's no getting away from it. And um, I'm not sure 
I know the Democrats are too weak. They, they cannot tell that part of their base no, as we've seen time and again. So- Well, and the academics especially have like essentially run so much of democratic policy since, I mean, forever, since like at least the 1960s. And so, I mean, they of course expect to have a role and a voice in talking about, you know, what's going on in Israel and Hamas. And I think, you know, they're definitely playing that up right now. And the administration is willing to give it to them. <laughs> and there, I mean, you also have to be fair, like the administration's receiving a lot of international pressure, right? Like the UN's calling for a ceasefire. Um, the Vatican is calling for a ceasefire, which I think is misplaced. Um, yeah, it, there's a ton of international pressure as well. And that's probably playing into this a little bit. Yeah, we had a great piece on the site about how, again, we all know this <laughs> to reiterate that the UN is just a den of thieves and scoundrels, if not worse, uh, and that the that we allow like Iranian uh, ministers to come to the United States uh, when they're supporting these sorts of terrorist acts uh, with their money that some of the money that we gave them uh, almost certainly. Uh, is obscene. It's it's despicable, and this administration should be held accountable for it. But it's one of those things that just doesn't really trickle down. I don't think to most voters. Uh, it's a little too abstract. It assumes that someone know a lot about how not only the government ought to operate, but how it does uh, in actuality. Uh, so that's just wonderful. A lot of wonderful stuff to report this morning. Uh, could you give us your uh, pick of the week, something that uh, readers can check out? Yeah, I, I feel like in some ways I've been a little bit behind reading this site and definitely something I'm going to have to catch up on over the weekend when I'm not creating stuff for the site or <laughs> trying to figure out how to run things around it. Um, but one of the pieces I really enjoyed um, editing and reading, I, I really didn't, I didn't edit it that much, um, was zombie voters. Um, it was just a really funny, well-timed piece um, with an, a good intersection between Halloween and, and election fraud and what's going on. Um, it was really well put. I really enjoyed it. And it was a good piece of um, some original reporting, which is always great to see. So what was your favorite piece from this week? So again, James H. McGee, Jim McGee, uh, his uh, ceasefire piece talking about international pressure on Israel and what that actually means uh, for that conflict, for that war, and just how the really anti-Semitic basis uh, for it, where the international community, I hate overusing community, community everything, but the international community saying, oh, poor Israel, oh, oh, poor Jews. But the second that Jews in Israel stand up for themselves, they're like, no, you can't, you absolutely can't hit back. <laughs> no, you can hit back. You should hit back because for a thousand reasons, Israel is allowed to protect itself. It should protect itself. And if it has people whose original charter is, we wish to destroy the state of Israel and all the Jews in it, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to go with the guys who are saying I would prefer that not to happen. I would like to stay here and not be destroyed and protect my family. It just does not seem that complicated. So a lot of credit for Jim. The great thing about being an editor compared to a writer is that you can go out and find all these writers who know way more than you about a subject and say, hey, could you come over and write the piece that I wish I could write? Uh, but give so much more detail and historical background and context that I could never uh, dredge up, even if I I wrote it for a year. Uh, there are just some things that are absorbed through life and through one's uh, professional career. And so I'm just grateful for Jim uh, bringing this to us and, and offering that piece um, that hopefully you readers can also bring a lot from. Because as a writer, you just can't know everything about everything. And we do entrust other writers who we know are good and decent men and women uh, to think seriously on subjects that we can't get to all the time. Um, and so, yeah, as an editor, it's just fabulous to have a whole roster of writers who are bringing that high quality content to us and to you, ultimately. Um, so as our, our high point of the week, it was Halloween, uh, All Hallows Eve. It was uh, Reformation Day for those of us who celebrate instead of denigrate. <laughs> and so as a Luther, I just wanna say, you're welcome, or I'm sorry, as the case may be. Uh, the Diet of Worms was, uh, was quite an inflection point at the very least in, in history and arguably probably one of the most important events in the last um, five, 600 years. It's difficult to comprehend how much was happening between 1490 and really 1550 in Europe and the world. Um, these cultures and peoples colliding and combining. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you, Aubrey, what did uh, Halloween look like for you as a kid? We were discussing overprotection, and do you consider uh, that your childhood was overprotected, just protected enough? What do you say? I Yeah, so Halloween, my parents really didn't celebrate, didn't have us celebrate Halloween. We grew up in the middle of nowhere on a farm road, so Trick-or-treating is a little difficult when your nearest neighbor is down a state highway roughly half a mile away. Um, oh, yeah. You know, just just fact of life. Um, we did, I do remember trick-or-treating when I was really, really little. And we were living in Virginia in a neighborhood. And we would dress up as, you know, saints. And I think one year I was um, Our Lady of Guadalupe. I remember that costume. It was a lot of fun. Um my brother Francis was St. Francis of Assisi. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> a great combo. But every time we would walk up to somebody's house, they were like, oh, what did you dress up as? And we'd say, you know, oh, like, you know, our Lady of Guadalupe. And they, there's just this like blank stare on their face. I mean, every Catholic kid has had this. We're like, everybody else. Protestant like, confusion. That's what you're observing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was actually more secular confusion. I mean, we were really close to DC. Um, somebody else was complaining like one year they dressed up as a pilgrim and whoever was like what's a pilgrim and he was like oh no it's your history like as a seven-year-old i know what a pilgrim is <laughs> um yeah i don't 
it wasn't a case of overprotection. We definitely dressed up. So like our parish would have like this big Saints Day party. Um, mm. Our job as kids was to comb through the Roman martyrology and find the people with like two sentences to their name that you really knew nothing about other than that they were like, you know, um, tortured on a wheel and then finally beheaded because everybody's beheaded in the martyrology. <laughs> the only way to get rid of people. <laughs> um, and then we would go up on stage and we would like present these, you know, elaborate stories of their life and give these little speeches and people would try to guess us. And I think I stumped people almost every year for a really long time. Um, I was very good at it, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, my favorite part of this week has always been though All Souls Day. It's just such somber, beautiful day. And I know like as a Protestant who doesn't believe in purgatory, I was so sad. Um, <laughs> like... It's a little different. I don't know. I went on the, one of my pieces this week on the website was going back and talking about like the history in the early Catholic church of, um, of venerating, but also of praying for the dead. Um, there's a passage in, um, Perpetua and Felicity, the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, where she talks about, um, praying for her younger brother who passed away when he was six or seven from uh, cancer on his face. And she sees a vision of him suffering and in pain. And then she starts praying for him nonstop. And then a little bit later, he appears to her playing happily. He, I don't think in the vision, I actually translated this in AP Latin in high school. Um, I don't think in the vision he ever talks to her. It's just that she understands that he's um, in heaven at that point we're in a better place so that was that was one of the things that i talked about in that piece um yeah we had a lot of good traditions for this week so that's a very good week yeah that is um did you ever read c.s lewis's uh, description of purgatory i need to look up what the title of that was but the the premise of the story is that um those in hell or sort of this hellish landscape have a bus station in the in the middle of hell and that there's like uh, dime store bookstores uh um yeah dime bookstores all the way through it's just a crummy cruddy place but you haven't gone and built your estate away from where everyone else is and then you get on this bus if you wish to and the bus takes you up into this middle area where your friends and family can come down from the celestial mountains and kind of meet you there and they try to convince you to go with them and so the denizens of that hellish place are almost always overwhelmed or are incapable of leaving the things behind that are destructive are despicable despicable about them but they just cling to them more than they wish to continue on uh, whenever they wish into those sorts of uplands and uh, his description of how everything is too real that it almost hurts the eyes hurts the the senses to interact with was fascinating. I think Lewis is described as probably the most Catholic uh, Protestant uh, to to have lived. Like Chesterton is described as the most Protestant Catholic. Um, that description, huh? I would not have thought so, but 
Yeah, you know, we we all try to like kind of bring over someone from the other camp who we really like, <laughs> want to associate with. Like, oh, he was one of us. He just he just walked into the wrong church one day and got stuck there. Um, but oh man, I'm gonna have to look it up, and I'll, I'll leave it in the show notes for you all. Uh, but for me, Halloween, you know, I went to a private Christian school and there were some kids who just didn't, didn't celebrate Halloween. It was wicked. It was devilish. It was what have you. And I think that's more than fair. Uh, and my parents said, here's the thing. You're going to meet your neighbors. You're going to get some free candy. You're go it's a social community event. And we aren't engaging with any of the, the nasty devilish sorts of things. This is for you to go out, have fun, meet people, take part in this event that means a lot, not only to you, but to others. And so if we can be Christian witness during this, that's awesome. Um, and so using what the culture provides you as a way to be a witness, that was something that uh, my dad, a cop, and my mom who taught uh, high school equivalency in the local jail, uh, both really wanted us to learn and talking about being overprotected. If anything, I was, and I wasn't underprotected. Like my parents would allow us to go anywhere we could ride our bikes. That was really it. <laughs> when you get tired, just come home. But <laughs> from an early age one, I was told there are people in the world who wanna do bad things to you. So don't speak to strangers. Don't stop if you're uncomfortable or generally don't stop if you know the person or don't know the person. And then when we got to be eight or nine, I think my dad sat us down at the computer and said, okay, here is the sex offender registry. And here is every house where there's someone who's a sex offender. You know wow. this, you see it, you understand that there are people, even a few blocks from us who are registered sex offenders. This isn't to keep you home or to keep you scared. It's just to let you know this is the world you live in and to act accordingly. So go out, have fun. But when you feel uncomfortable, get out, run, don't stop, don't think about it, just go. And so that's what I had. I had the whole city open to me at any time, bike to a friend's house, hang out. My friend's next door neighbor was Merv the Perv. Uh, we know he was a weirdo, <laughs> but because we knew this and because my parents both trusted us enough and also provide us, provided us information and treated us like we were smart enough to know what we were doing, we had opportunities to go and enjoy ourselves that those who are overprotected never get. And so when you get out into the real, real world, you're either taken in by shysters or you're so scared that you just stay home and stay in what's comfortable. Uh, so I'm really grateful for what they did because every night, you know, you come home and mom has the report on what her <laughs> students in jail were doing and you get the report from dad on who was locked up that day and you're like, okay, uh, the world is a dangerous place, but in the same vein, there are all sorts of opportunities to not only have fun and enjoy God's creation, but to be a positive influence in that. Um, so Halloween was one of those 
sorts of events for us. And I'm, I'm grateful we got to do it, especially living in the city where you could walk a few blocks and fill up a whole pillowcase full of candy. We went old school with it. We went uh, Charlie Brown, you know, and the great pumpkin. I never got a rock in, in my bag, thankfully. That would have been a real bummer, you know. Yeah, Unless we it was like one of those fancy in. polished ones, maybe that would have been cool. Yeah, yeah. There was a time when my mom was very anti-candy. Um, and uh, also- Yeah, it's usually when moms or dads are on diets. That's what I noticed. <laughs> well, and she would like, she she was pretty strict with it, but All Saints Day was always the day or All Saints Day Halloween, whatever, was always like the time of year you could kind of get away with having an entire grocery bag full of <laughs> Kit Kats and whatever else. Uh, that and Easter, those were the two days. Mm. Yeah, those with. Robin's eggs, malt ball things. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd tear through those and then I'd be so sick. And then I'd be feeling bad about Easter because I associated it with stomach aches. And I'd go, okay, maybe I got my priorities wrong here. But, uh, you know, when you're seven, sugar is pretty high on the list of one's idols. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, any final thoughts for the, the good people of the American Spectator? I don't think so. Really, just uh, head over to the site. I saw that we had a really strong site this morning. Um, definitely a lot of good pieces going up over the weekend as well. So, and next week, pretty much this whole thing, we'll be doing a lot of coverage of Israel and the upcoming election and everything else. So, definitely check it out. Yep. And I failed to put a short story in my uh, newsletter, but uh, go read Dream of a Ridiculous Man by Dostoevsky if you're so inclined. Uh, it's it's pretty darn depressing, <laughs> to be honest, but uh, there's a lot of strength in knowing oneself to be ridiculous and operating off of that, uh, understanding and accepting it and then recognizing that others are equally ridiculous. And there's a lot of freedom uh, and humility in that moment uh, where we are not God and thank God for that. So with that, we thank you for joining us at the uh, American Spectator, Spectator PM podcast. Have a lovely weekend. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers. <laughs>